What does it take to create something that has never existed before? What does it take to challenge the status quo? What does it take to change the world? This is the Swell Podcast. Take a journey with us as we seek the answers to those questions through the stories of thought leaders, world builders, game changers, disruptors, and other pleasantly rebellious humans who set out to do something novel, creative, or disruptive. This episode of The Swell Pod is brought to you in partnership with Kiln. Kiln provides flex office space for teams and individuals. Their all-inclusive set of amenities helps startups, creatives, and entrepreneurs alike get work done. Learn more about Kiln at kiln.co. Thank you. Welcome to The Swell Podcast, everybody. Um, so today uh, we have Aga Bajer. Uh, we're super excited to, to be chatting with Aga today. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation just going to go over a quick bio for you and uh and then we'll kind of dive into this but uh yeah so aga is a culture strategist the founder of culture brained the author of building and sustaining a coach a coaching culture and the creator and host of the culture lab podcast the question at the core of her work is how can we make work synonymous with fun meaning and belonging so that great companies are able to make the right dent in the world uh, Aga, she grew up in Poland for the past 20 years. She's been helping companies pay attention to their culture in a way that produces desirable results. Uh, from VC courting startups to Fortune 500, Aga has worked on cultivating remarkable cultures that scale and that help people do the best work of their careers. First as part of consultancies such as Hay Group, Corn Ferry, and PwC, and then later the founder of her own firm. Her true passion today is helping clients codify, activate, and evolve their culture playbooks so that they can create an environment uh, where the right culture emerges naturally by choice and not by chance. Uh, yeah, so we're again, we're super excited to speak with you, um, you know, in relationship to, I know Spencer and I, we both have experience um, building stories, designing experiences for cultures. And, uh, you know, for me specifically, I'm, I, I love storytelling and I'm super excited to talk to you about story and its impact on culture. And I know Spencer has a lot of, uh, a lot of things that he's excited to talk to you about as well today too. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And before we get into kind of the first set of questions, I just want to say, yeah, I, you know, over time, your podcast has really made a big, big impact. I, I was kind of listening to one episode now and again here and there, um, mm -hmm. but then now it's like it? something. Well, no, but well, lots of the, lots of the early ones like Seth Gordon really caught, caught my eye. Um, but but over time now, I've listened to, I would say seventy percent of your episodes. I think it's fantastic. Wow. I think they're specific. You know, I listen to them just like my brothers, Greg, Greg, uh, who might come on your podcast as well. Um, I, I've listened to it Fingers really crossed. as a, as a really, re, no, but I like, I have to listen to it every week. Um, I think it gives me great ideas. Um, I've read books because of your podcast and implemented certain things in, in, in our work, uh, because of conversations you've had in, in the podcast and, uh, yeah. So thank you for the work you do. Um, one of the thank very you. first questions I want to kick it, kick off with, um, is, uh, what is yeah what to you is a remarkable culture well i think that i would have answered probably something slightly differently a few years ago so it's such a great question i think to ask at this stage because actually you know at some point in my career i was 
really keen on this idea that there is no one size fits all. And that obviously we all know that every company is different and unique in its own way. And so it would only make sense that a remarkable culture for Netflix is going to be something entirely different from a remarkable culture for Volkswagen or whatever. And I even had a book contract signed to write a book to prove this thesis that there is no one size fits all. And it's really hard to talk about remarkable culture that would be true for every organization. Um, and as I dove into the data, I've interviewed hundreds of people in dozens of organizations over the years. And I dove into the data and to my horror, I started noticing some emerging trends and patterns. And so basically that shattered my thesis for the book. Um, and so what I noticed is that really remarkable cultures are unique and different, but they are built on the foundation of three pillars. And these pillars are fun, meaning, and belonging. And so I haven't seen a single organization in the ones that I looked at that wouldn't have, that people wouldn't report a sense of belongingness to the organization. And we can talk a little bit more about this. Um, this sense of what I call deep fun. Um, again, we can talk about what exactly that means and a sense of purpose in their work. So today my answer is remarkable culture is a culture that um, has these three pillars in place and they're quite strong and stable because I think it's a little bit like a three-legged stool if one of these pillars is wobbly, you know, your whole foundation for your culture is going to be wobbly as well. So yeah, that's, that's the answer that I've arrived at recently. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is I, I love how you just talked about those three pillars, the fun, meaning and belonging. And it goes back to what we kind of mentioned in the intro is that there's that central core question to your work of, you know, um, how can we infuse that into our work? So the fun, the meaning, and the belonging being that those are those three key pillars. And ultimately, it's you, you even mentioned with the outcome of being able to put a dent in the world, which I think is pretty incredible. I, I think we could dive a little bit more deeply into those three pillars and, and just, you know, kind of give us an overview of what does that actually look like uh, when, you, when you start building on the idea of deep fun, uh, finding meaning in work, and then also the, the belonging as well. Yeah, I'd love to start with fun because yeah. I think it's the most misunderstood um, and underutilized um, pillars of company cultures. And generally, when I start talking to people about fun, there's a lot of resistance. It's almost like, you know, for a lot of people, fun and, and work don't really mix. Yeah. Um, so work yeah. is it's this virtuous thing and you need to be serious and you need to take it seriously. And then fun is perceived as almost this, frivolous thing, right? That we mm. can hardly ever afford. Um, so when I talk to about fun and what I've seen in, in my research is that we are definitely not talking here about the shallow fun of ping pong tables and Friday pizza parties. I'm talking about the joy of work itself. So it's not even the fun that takes take place at work, like, you know, something enjoyable happens and it happens at work. So we have fun at work. I'm talking about the fun that people have with the work itself. Mm. And 
when I looked a little bit closer at what leads to this sense of fun, I discovered something that um, a science journalist, Catherine Price, discovered as well. And it was pretty amazing because we basically arrived at a very similar conclusion through completely different paths. She was looking at a sense of fun in our personal lives. I was looking at a sense of fun at work. And through these completely independent paths, we've arrived at three elements that contribute to the sense of fun. So the first one is a feeling of flow. And I think we all know that flow is this um, deep focus, uh, when we feel immersed in an activity, time passes, we don't even realize how fast it passes or what happened because we were so deeply into what we're doing. Um, the second element that we've noticed that people mention a lot, you know, and the question that I asked people when I was interviewing them is just, please remember the last time you had fun at work. Um, mm. And actually, I think to illustrate that, I, I think it would be nice, you know, I'm a podcaster myself, so I'm used to asking questions. So I think I'm going to put you on the spot if you don't mind. And I would love to ask yeah. you, like, when was the last time you experienced fun at work? Please tell me a little bit more about this. And I don't mean the shallow fun. I mean the fun that that is the joy of work itself. And if you can describe it to me, that would be amazing. Yeah, I, so I can start. Um, so... I would say my my deepest passion is around is around storytelling and oftentimes that manifests itself through through video. And so as a result, I would say that when I find myself having the most fun is when I'm creating uh, scripting, doing all of the necessary pre-production work, production work and then post-production for for let's say uh, a film with a very strong uh, narrative. And that can, be, that can be for work or that can be for, for anything else, even outside of work. But that's when I find myself, you mentioned flow, finding that, that point of flow where I can just get lost in a problem, lost in trying mm -hmm. to find the best way to tell a story. And it just consumes me where I'm not, I've lost track of time. I've lost track of just about everything. And I'm mm. just deep into that work. Yeah. So I hear flow here and I also hear creative problem solving. Mm. And that's the second element of fun that I have identified in my work as well. So we refer to it as playfulness and playfulness at work is basically when we get to be creative at work and really irrespective of whether I speak to people like you who do creative work, um, like filming or creating narratives and stories, or whether we, I speak to people who do work that we wouldn't necessarily consider creative, like mm. accountants, they will speak about the same thing, which is um, just, you know, solving wicked or difficult or interesting problems and having that sense of being creative while they're doing it. So it's incredible to hear that from you because really almost every single story about fun at work includes that element of playfulness, of solving um, interesting problems. And, and what is it? For you, Spencer, do you have a story to share, <laughs> like a specific time when you had a lot of fun at work? Yeah, I, and and I also have a question back to you around around which which of these do you think is the most important, uh, or which one would you begin with um, as a priority out of flow, you know, connection and play? Yeah. But 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 yeah, the things that I think I get lost in. Uh, it is really around insights, um, gaining insights about 
my colleagues or my peers um, has been the, the best experiences that I've had, which often mm -hmm. generate a lot of playfulness um, and definitely flow. Um, but, you know, giving you an example, asking someone very simply what or, or, or colleagues or employees what they would find as an, un, uh, un, an unforgettable experience um, just asking that question and maybe even asking them to share some of their talents or their unique abilities, um, even funny things, um, you can then start to connect the dots between, oh, well, we're trying to achieve X at this event or this training or this session, but this other person in the room has got some skills that we could match to that. And so, so, so magically you can kind of connect the dots and we've had people up on the stages at the start of meetings, to, sharing their talents, uh, their musical talents, singing, rapping, all sorts of things where you wouldn't yeah. have expected it, but because you yeah. asked those questions and you connected the dots, mm -hmm. it was just fun. And, and, you know, and, and you seamlessly yeah. learn something. Yeah. So this is this speaks really to I think the most surprising element of fun for me, because I'm an introvert, um, and I was surprised to find that other introverts, including myself, will always mention others in their stories of fun at work. And I think what you've just mentioned, just you know, having an opportunity to connect to others in a meaningful way, it's deeply fulfilling. And so when people think about what constitutes those moments of fun, typically, even if you are very introverted, there will be other people in the picture. And I find this incredibly interesting. And I think it's an in incredibly interesting problem to think about, especially these days during, you know, the in the era of remote and hybrid work, where we don't get as many opportunities to have these meaningful connections. And definitely we don't get that many opportunities to be in the same space together. And so I think it's a big challenge for all of us to think, how can we generate meaningful connections that will contribute to the sense of fun whilst perhaps we're not in the same room. And I think storytelling is absolutely a wonderful avenue to get that to that space. You can do this virtually as well. And if there's anything that really resonates with people at a very, very deep level, I agree with you. I think these are those, those stories about what people are passionate about or where they come from, stories that really come from a deep place in people's psyche and connect to, to things that are truly meaningful for them. Yeah. Just one, just one follow-up question on that. It, it, for our, even for our listeners, what practical tips could you give them to, you know, if, if they've written those words down, you know, I want to be, to be free-flowing, um, or sorry, have flow, connection, mm -hmm. and playfulness, where do they begin? Like, is there two or yeah. three simple, short things they can go away and do to figure out how to accomplish that in a meaningful <laughs> way? I appreciate this question because I think it's really important to make these things um, actionable uh, because it's so nice to talk about them. But at the end of the day, if we want to create that environment, we need people need to know, people need to have an idea. What can I do? How can we implement those things? So, so thank you for creating the space for me to share a few ideas. So first, let's think about flow. Um, if we want to experience uh, a state of flow, what we cannot have are distractions. 
And the problem today is that unfortunately there are so many things that are pulling at our attention. So I think, you know, the first really simple tip, if you really want to uh, experience um, a state of flow or create an environment where your team members can experience more flow, it's really important to give it some breathing space. And that means that, that we cannot run from one meeting to another all the time. People need to have space on the calendars, ideally one and a half hour at a minimum to really work on an important task that is a priority for them so that they can do this creative work. Because if you have just slivers of time, 10 minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes, yes, you will be able to um, make some progress, but it's very hard to get yourself into a state of flow. So time and space and lack of distractions are really important. So some of the companies that we work with, they have been experimenting with many different things, what, what they can do. Um, some use color coding on people's calendars so that people know whether they can uh, disturb someone or not. So when you see, for example, uh, red color, it means please do not disturb. I'm doing some deep work and I will not be available during this time. There are companies that have introduced, um, can I swear on your podcast? Yep. <laughs> okay. So they've introduced Get Shit Done Days and mm -hmm. Get Shit Done Day is basically a day where you cannot book a meeting at all. So the whole day is this, um, white canvas for people to work on the things that they need to see progress on and, and want to get themselves in a state of flow. So really eliminating distractions, I think, as a principle, uh, as much as you can, is going to be super important. Um, when it comes to the remaining two elements, so connections and then playfulness, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things that I could share, but, um, I'll go to playfulness and I'll say this. Um, generally people don't believe that they are creative. And so playfulness in the sense of coming up with creative ideas to problems that people face requires a little bit of a change in mindset. And so I think, you know, the first thing that we can do is really to acknowledge that, um, we have, we, we have been at some point in our lives, a creative genius. George Land, I don't know if you're familiar with his work with NASA, when NASA was planning to put men on the moon, he created a creativity test and um, he basically used this test to identify the most creative, the most innovative individuals who would help NASA to put the men on the moon. Um, so the ultimate moonshot. Um, as we know, it was a really um, successful test because they did put an amazing team together. Um, and what George Land discovered when he started playing with this test in different contexts was that um, people are creative, but at a certain point in their lives. So he, he tested this test with five-year-olds. And what he discovered is that 98% of five-year-olds could be classified as creative geniuses. And we are not talking about kids from NASA's School for the Gifted. We're talking about kids with snotty noses and grubby knees, <laughs> just like you and me used to be in the past. So he was really fascinated and he thought it would be good to turn this into a long-term experiment. And so he tested the same children, 1,600 kids, uh, five years later. So now they are 10 years old and he discovers 
only 30% of those kids are, are creative geniuses now, hmm. 15 years old, only 12% of these kids were creative geniuses. And finally, 30 years old, only 2% could be classified as creative geniuses. So I'm sharing this story with you because I think what's really important is that we, first of all, reclaim our creative genius to be able to be playful and recognize the fact that we were probably one of those kids in the 98%. And what happened is through education and societal conditioning, et cetera, et cetera, we lost it. But what George Land discovered is that non-creative behaviors are acquired and learned. And the good news is if we can learn something, we can unlearn it. So my very practical tip to everyone, if you want to introduce more playfulness into the workplace is help your team members and help yourself to reclaim that creative genius by doing exactly the things that five-year-olds do typically. And again, you know, I'm going to throw the ball into your, uh, into your um, court now and ask you like, what, what do five-year-olds do typically? Like, what do you see kids do in, you know, when they grow they're, up? Uh, they're, so I would imagine curiosity is, is, is huge. Like the idea of asking big questions is, is probably pretty key to that. Totally. Like, they, they can be annoying, right? Asking the, the question <laughs> why a lot, right? If I, yeah. Five exactly. times in a row. <laughs> exactly. So it can be almost annoying, but they ask a lot of questions and especially the why, 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 absolutely really curious. And also, you know, and it's so wonderful to watch small kids, like they will take any constraint that they are presented with and just start creating solutions to basically entertain themselves, right? So you can say, you know, you, you need to sit here in the corner of the room for one hour. And if you watch a kid at that age, they will come up with creative ideas of how to entertain themselves, um, even if they're just facing a wall. Um, but one thing that those kids have also in common is that basically, because they don't have a lot of life experience, they do a new thing almost every day and perhaps even multiple times per day. So like they have a first in their life multiple times per day. And there's research that shows that if we can um, do that as adults, this is going to rewire our brains. And so when I work with teams, I often encourage them to start doing that. So like literally, you know, run a seven day challenge or maybe even a 30 day challenge where you will, um, you will do something that you've never done before, not necessarily work related even because it doesn't really matter so much, but something that you've never done before. It can be cooking a new dish or even doing something slightly differently. So like if you are right-handed, brush your teeth with your left hand, that will work as well. This research that shows that if we can continue this practice, our convergent thinking increases by 200 to 300%. And our convergent thinking, which is basically about identifying the good ideas and then implementing them, increases significantly as well. So my first practical tip is um, be playful about how you reclaim your creative genius and run challenges like that. Um, a lot of teams that we work with have like a Slack channel with this 
30 day challenge and people will be sharing what they did. And it's incredibly engaging and fun. And um, people report that they really have seen an increase in creativity. So that's one thing. Second practical tip. Um, and I see a lot of people implementing this, including Katerina Berry, who was one of the um, guests on my podcast, and she's the CHRO of Spotify. If you look at her LinkedIn profile, what you'll notice is a lot of pictures from various places around the globe when she does what she calls walk and talk. So basically, she'll take a member of her team, and instead of sitting in an office and having a meeting, they will actually walk. And again, research shows that walking increases our convergent thinking by 120% and convergent thinking by 23%. So it's really powerful um, it, and, and it really helps to solve problems. And the definition of playfulness in the workplace that, that I use is solving interesting problems together. So that's, that's very inducive to that. Yeah. yeah, it's a great point, Josh. It, it, you know, ch children, I, it made me think of loads of things, right? The importance of dancing um, when you haven't done it for mm -hmm. years, the importance of talking to yourself, um, yeah. getting a big cardboard box and making something out of it that you've, you know, that you probably haven't done since you were 10, you know, five or 10 years old. Um, all of those things just create, just trigger something different in us. And I think if the more we can do that, the more we can have insights about, colleagues childhood memories or childhood mm -hmm. kind of um, hobbies that they used to do I think it, it, it would it would certainly uh, refresh uh, f refresh people's yeah. kind of feeling now Josh we have questions I think about your childhood um, should we go there next yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> so you're in Pol you, you grew up in Poland I understand yes um, and so we want to know a little bit more about your passion uh, for for culture. Uh, mm -hmm. You asked that question on all of your podcasts, but where and how did you first find your passion for culture? So this is really weird, but it's true. So I think <laughs> the first moment I um, realized that I have a passion for culture and I explain what I mean by that was I think when I was probably five or six years old, um, I was growing up, as you've mentioned in Poland, it was back in uh, the days of communism. So behind, behind the iron curtain. Um, and that was quite constraining already. But on top of that, I was growing up um, in a house with older relatives. So my uh, grandparents and an aunt, not with my parents. Um, so I didn't really have a lot of friends and it felt quite lonely. But I did, what I did have access to were books and I learned to read really early on because my aunt was a teacher. She was very passionate about teaching. So she actually taught me to read at the age of five. And so I started reading and I was also watching TV and I loved all of these adventure documentaries and Westerns also and stuff like that. And so what I would do, because I didn't have friends back then, was I would climb an apple tree um, in our garden and I would sit perched on one of the branches and basically pretend that I was a pirate girl on a ship going on an adventure. And I would also imagine that there was a series of really cool people with me on that ship. And, you know, because there are 
basically no limitations when you imagine things when you are a kid. So, so there was like a Native American and a shaman and other pirates um, and writers um, and really interesting people from all walks of life. But I think what, what they did have in common, it was that they were really different from the people that I was surrounded with in my little town. And that was something that I always craved, um, something different. I think it was because we were so isolated and our culture was so homogenous. Um, like back then in Poland, the only people you would meet were Polish people. Um, they would have similar beliefs and similar culture. And so I was always, since I was a kid, I can remember, I was always fascinated with different cultures, with the mystery, with things that I still couldn't understand. So that was my, you know, my first, um, I think the first moment when I thought, oh, culture, you know, people don't behave in a similar way. They don't wear similar clothes everywhere. They don't think in similar ways. And I just, I was just so curious and so fascinated with it. Yeah, that's awesome. And so understanding kind of, so you, you started finding that passion, um, in understanding the things that maybe you didn't understand from other cultures as well. And, and then, so from that point on, like, what was the first experience that you had where you began to apply that in like, in a, in a real world situation, thinking about cultivating cultures, like mm -hmm. your first real, uh, working experience in regards to, uh, workplace culture? Oh my God, my first working experience. <laughs> um, yes. I'm laughing because, you know, it was, um, my first working experience was in a company that we co-created with a friend of mine. So mm. we were really, really young, 20 years, 20 plus. And I had this friend who was incredibly entrepreneurial. And at that time I was still a student. I was studying English literature and, um, he tried to convince me to join his startup because he needed someone who spoke languages. And back then I spoke English and Russian. And so, because he wanted to start exporting goods or doing business with other countries. So he would always try to convince me that I should join him um, in creating a company. And at some point I said, listen, I'm a huge fan of ice cream still to this mm. day. And I said, okay, okay, let's create an ice cream factory. At least, you know, we'll get to eat a lot of ice cream. It was a total joke. Like, obviously I wasn't serious, but he thought that it was actually a pretty cool idea. And so, um, he started it. Um, I wasn't there from the very beginning and then I joined. So it was my first working experience. And as you can imagine, we really had no idea what we were doing, zero idea what we were doing. Um, and somehow, um, through a combination, I think of pure grit, persistence and luck, um, that company was actually quite successful commercially. Mm. And so it started growing and growing and our team grew. And very quickly, I realized that, um, it was really hard to create an environment where people would feel happy and engaged and where we would really be able to tap into um, what they were capable of doing. So I just looked at some people that I knew and I knew that they were capable of more, but somehow there was something we were doing that didn't allow them 
to really you know show all their talents and and um bring their full selves to work um so i started i went down this rabbit hole i started reading a lot on the topic um i did some courses and eventually i decided to do uh, a postgraduate degree in strategic human resources management i left that company because I wanted to learn more. And I joined a consultancy that was called Hey Group uh, back then. It doesn't exist anymore. It was purchased, it was acquired by, by Corn Ferry. Um, but it was one of the leading uh, consultancies in the space of HR. And one of the people they were associated with was Dan Goldman, the father of emotional intelligence. So I think, you know, I would work for them even if they didn't pay me. I was so mm. excited to join that company. And so that was my journey. And my drive was really to understand what were we doing wrong? And like, what are the things that you can do to set people up for success? Because it was, you know, it was such a stark difference how we performed commercially and financially as an organization and our culture back then. So I'm not proud of that, but we were really unable. We had zero knowledge, zero understanding, and we're unable to create an environment where people would genuinely feel like it's a great place to work and where they can do the best work of their careers. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I want to kind of go back just for a second about um, the so the first experience that you had. I mean, it sounded like it had a, a lot of the elements that that are required for the fun aspect of, of what you're talking about. You know, first of all, ice cream. But then second of all, the uh, an interesting problem and it required a lot of grit and what it what it made me think of is so uh, a good majority of our audience members are are entrepreneurs you know so they might have a relatively small size company and thinking about uh that's like a, a let's say a, a small uh pre-seed kind of funding company where maybe you're you're very limited in terms of the amount of employees that are working there as you th you think about culture it's an interesting question um you know is that something that they can and should be actively thinking about, or is that just a natural byproduct of the idea of a close group of people solving a really interesting problem that they're all really passionate about? Yeah, yeah. Um, I work a lot with startups um, because I think that's my, you know, that's my background, mm. and so I'm I'm interested in staying connected to the space. So. I can actually answer this question with a lot of confidence, feeling that I, 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 that. Uh, yeah. I am absolutely convinced um, that what, what I'm going to share is true. And the answer is yes, absolutely. You should be intentional about your culture from day one, simply because um, a startup um, that is a little bit like, you know, scrambled eggs. If you scramble it, it's very difficult to unscramble it. So if you mess it up at the very beginning, it's going to be very difficult to uh, unscramble your culture. And so, and unfortunately, sometimes when you're so focused on results and solving interesting problems, but you don't, you, you are not intentional about your culture, it's easy to go to one of the extremes. And, you know, cultivating a healthy culture um, is a balancing act. And basically they are, there are two um, primary tensions that we need to think about when we create a company and company culture. One is results versus relationships and people. So like it's, it's, you know, very easy to go to that extreme of results at the very beginning, at the beginning of the journey. And this is what definitely we did. And 
the result of that and the outcome of that is that you you are at the risk of cultivating a culture that is going to be toxic because basically mm -hmm. at some point you know you will value results more than people if you go to the other extreme and if you value people more than results what you end up with is mediocrity and clearly mm -hmm. As a startup, you don't want that either. So it's really how you strike that right balance. And that takes a huge amount of intentionality and a huge amount of work. It's like daily practice, really thinking, you know, what can we do to strike that right balance? And then, of course, especially thinking of startups, typically startups will go. So the other tension, that was the first tension between results and people. And then you have um, the tension between rules and, um, and risks, right? Mm. So if you are leaning towards rules, what you end up with is bureaucracy. If you lean too much towards risk, what you end up with is anarchy. And I think, you know, in a lot of startups, you end up in the situation where, where it can <laughs> feel like, you know, you have a lot of anarchy happening. Yeah. And it's great for the first handful of people who started the company. But the moment you start hiring, the moment you start scaling up, you know, you'll see people coming into your organization. And the first question that they're going to ask you is like, where's the employee handbook? Or what is our strategy, right? And these are the questions that very often founders are not prepared to ask because they are just used to always, um, you know, coming with coming up with solutions and ideas on a whim and without really thinking things through or maybe just through a continuous iteration. But that might not be enough when your team is growing. So, um, you know, that was a very long-winded answer to your question. Oh, that was perfect. Very short answer is absolutely yes. I think being intentional about culture from day one is incredibly, incredibly important. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I just have one follow-up question, if that's okay. And then Spencer, I'll toss it over to you. But, um, you know, one thing that I'm really fascinated about is uh, when you talk about culture, you're very specific about using the word cultivate. Uh, like cultivating culture, uh, as opposed to maybe others might talk about it in terms of transforming culture, uh, changing culture, designing culture. And cultivate is a very specific mm -hmm. word that means something to me very, very different, much more careful, much yeah. more uh, in a way that you much more recognize that there is something of value to be grown out of this thing. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you can talk about why the specificity and using the word cultivate when you talk about culture is so important to you? First of all, thank you for noticing that. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And to your question, yes, indeed, it's intentional. And the way I see it is, you know, when you cultivate something or when you think about cultivating um, a, a plant or, or something that is alive, which culture actually is, there's this whole process of really tending to it almost every single day, if not every single day, sometimes multiple times per day. And to me, this is the only way you can actually have an impact on culture. So it's, it's never one and done. Um, and also, um, you cannot mandate it. It has to be a movement. Uh, there has to be a group of people who do this, um, the right things every single day. So, 
one part of Cultivate is that daily practice and daily habits that um, maintain the right kind of culture or help it evolve in the right way. Um, the second aspect and why I'm not a huge fan of the word designer culture is that you already have a culture. So it's not like you can design it from scratch. I mean, even if there are only two people in the company, like the two co-founders, the moment you have two human beings interacting with each other, you have developed a culture, uh, families mm -hmm. and, and relationships, even romantic relationships have a culture. And so saying that we want to design it, um, well, yes, you, you could do it, but definitely you cannot design it from scratch. So I prefer Cultivate because first of all, it's something organic. It's something that's already there and you want to respect it. So like you want to respect what's great about what's already there. Um, and that's an important process for me, acknowledging that certain things are working really well and then identifying, you know, what, what needs to happen, what wants to happen and how can you help it to grow in the right direction. Um, whereas the design is more of a, I would say it, it, it makes us think about designing something from scratch. It mm -hmm. makes us think about culture as this. Um, as an object rather than something organic. And I think culture is more um, of, a, of a living organism than, than an object for sure, 100%. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I yeah. love that answer. It's something that we've been thinking about a lot. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Spencer. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't know how to pronounce Icy's name, but Icy Bursal that you interviewed uh, around design, um, was I interesting, share, wasn't I it? Because, yeah, yeah, because because I I said yeah. So she can you know she talked about deconstructing and reconstructing, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. well anything to do with in design, mm -hmm. but I think it all it also applied to to culture. Um, mm -hmm. Could you take it? Yes, you can't start again, but you, you could you could understand it in a way um, that you've maybe not understood it before. Let's go. Let's let's deconstruct the whole thing, reconstruct it, and actually find the, the the areas that you can make the most difference when it comes to cultivating culture. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought those, those were great, great points. What what is the biggest challenge you face then in in cultivating culture and and showing well specifically showing its value that you did cultivate it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking of specific situations yeah. where I was either the person, um, within an organization, um, trying to be, um, intentional about cultivating culture or working with organizations as a consultancy and the most challenging situation when it comes to cultivating culture. Um, so one of the challenges that I faced, and it was so hard that I eventually decided to leave that space, was working for and with large consultancies that work with really large organizations that are bound by um, certain regulations to 
um, do something about their culture. So for example, in Europe, especially in, in financial um, institutions, they need to be able to prove that they have taken measures and actions to cultivate a certain type of culture, for example, risk culture. And so as a result of that, you end up as a consultancy working with a lot of clients who simply see it as a compliance issue rather than anything else. And so it's a tick a box exercise where you do certain things, you say, okay, I've done it and we're good, but nothing really changes. So the need um, for doing this work is there, but it's, it's not for the right reasons. And I found that incredibly challenging because uh, of course, if there is no real intention to um, to change something, and if you are just going through the motions to be able to say, yes, we are investing in our culture, it, it's a very frustrating experience. So I would say that that was the most challenging thing for me as a consultant, having to go through the motions with these clients who are really not genuinely committed to doing the work. And it was one of the reasons why I wanted to step out of it and create a situation for myself and, and the company that I'm building right now, Culture Brained, where we can actually work with organizations that are really serious about this work and perhaps say no sometimes, you know, to client organizations that are not serious about the work. Um, because I am driven by impact. I want to see, you know, um, some ripples of our work. And I want us to see that we have contributed to positive change. And when that's not possible because of various reasons, it, yeah, it, it can be incredibly difficult. So I would say that was the biggest challenge for me personally, to be in a situation where you feel like mm. it's really, really hard to see that impact. Yeah. And, and finding the right organizations that are ready for change yeah. to get to the next level. Um, yeah. Is super super important that you just said. What what is your most proud kind of um, work that you've done that has made not necessarily the biggest difference, but the one that comes to your mind now that's the most proud moment where you helped make a difference to cultivating culture. Mm -hmm. I think it might be a little bit of a recency effect because I've done. Um, some work with with uh, a couple of organizations recently and i've had people reach out to me and say thank you for this there's this concept that we use um and an idea and differentiation between being an advocate of something and an activist and so we say be an activist not an advocate because an activist is someone who takes daily action to cultivate the right kind of culture and an advocate is someone who consistently talks about the need for change but it doesn't necessarily translate into action and so i've had people reach out and tell me about what they did to be an activist in their team and very specific actions that they have taken. And I have to say that I'm always incredibly moved when I see individuals within organizations who are not necessarily even at high ranks in these organizations to um, move from aspirations to maybe contribute to something to actually doing things and feeling empowered and and getting the space to take action so that's 
that always resonates with me at a very, very deep level. And if I know the people, if I've met them, um, that, that is super powerful for me. So I would say that's, um, that's the most recent, really powerful thing that sticks with me hearing from people. I've, I've done this, I've done that. It was really, um, great to feel like I can make a difference and it's important and it counts. Because at the end of the day, I think this is how we cultivate mm -hmm. thriving cultures, one person at a time, but it does require a movement. It cannot be a mandate. So when, when we can mobilize people in organizations this way, where, where someone who doesn't even have a title, you know, team leader or a manager, um, takes responsibility for their culture and their team, that's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that, yeah. that. The, 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 the area of, of how to create a movement, a cultural movement is super fascinating. And, uh, you know, you might have different mm. views as a kind of a, as a, as a consultant kind of coming in to help an organization. But when you're in an organization, um, I'm kind of curious to know, I mean, this is the question Josh around kind of leadership can, is it the leaders or is it the people, um, on the ground can make the biggest difference to cultural change? Um, and you're just talking about, in fact, it's Seth Godin's right, book on linchpin. I feel very passionate about like you can make an, an inordinate difference as one individual. You really can if you choose to. Um, and you can create these kind of grassroots movements inside big organizations or, or maybe even small organizations. But which is the most important, the leader? Um, the people on the ground, where would you begin to yeah. really change, you know, create a I, movement of um, cultural change? Yeah. 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 I'm a huge fan of uh, both end thinking. And so I wouldn't necessarily frame it as an either or proposition because of course, ideally you want both. So you want leadership to, um, create the right conditions for people to be able to engage with this work, um, be um, the people who go first and role model certain things, but also people who, uh, because they are, they have decision-making power, you know, some systemic changes cannot really be achieved by a movement. Um, a very simple example, like if we want to create a better reward system that rewards the right behaviors, unfortunately, Typically, it cannot be done by uh, people in the accounting department. It, you need a buy-in from a decision maker in your organization. So I think leaders are incredibly important, of course, to this work. And we see this in the diagnostic tools that we use with organizations. Um, so over the years, I've always worked for companies that were very de data oriented. And so we've always used tools to take a snapshot of culture at various um, uh, moments in time. And, you know, what's, what's really interesting is that you'll see a change of a CEO uh, and immediately, like a month later, culture is completely different. So we've seen organizations that have made incredible progress towards a thriving culture over the years, and then leadership changed and they went backwards literally 10 years, literally. 
So we looked at there because this was a long-term project and we've been with this organization for 10 years doing the diagnostic every single year. After a few months, this organization went back 10 years. So clearly we cannot say that leadership is not important. It's incredibly important. But at the same time, you cannot mandate a certain culture. And I think, you know, for people who work in... Um, in a department very far removed from senior leaders, um, what shapes them and the way they think and they, they work is the person who sits next to them or the person that they collaborate with most frequently and how they engage with them. And so we work a lot with what we call informal influencers within the organizations or informal leaders. And these are typically people who have very high social capital. They are very well connected within their organization. These are the people who others trust, respect, value for their expertise, um, and feel connected to. Um, and these people are incredibly important in cultivating a healthy culture. So, so I think it's both. You cannot really... I mean, if you want to be successful in cultivating a healthy culture, you cannot, I think, be successful without both of these approaches, bottom up, but also top down, obviously, in some cases, and leaders can make or break an organization. We know this. We've seen so many examples now that a CEO um, can literally destroy uh, a company culture in just a few months. Yeah. Um, Thank you. In, so I think that's really interesting. And uh, you mentioned actually, so in that, uh, the idea of a culture snapshot, like you take culture mm -hmm. snapshots and you're very data oriented. What does that, what does that mean a culture snapshot and what data do you, are you capturing to be able to like uh, quantify and, and yeah. measure culture, I guess. Yeah. 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 That, well, that's a great question. Of course, there are so many different tools out there that uh, people can use. Um, Right now, we've developed our own uh, approach in Culture Brains, uh, but I did use third-party tools for many, many years. So there's definitely a lot um, that, that people can look at and decide to use. Um, so what we look at is the tensions that I've mentioned earlier. So we like to mm -hmm. plot, to help our clients plot where they are on this uh, people versus results and uh, risks versus rules. Um, and we put two different lenses there. So we will look at the senior leadership team and where they are and where is the rest of the organizations because very often you will have a significant gap there. And these gaps and the way they, um, they uh, are integrated, they play a huge part in what you know, uh, since culture, since you will see there, whether there's going to be bureaucracy or whether there's going to be mediocrity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's one thing that we look at. We also look at, we, we map the organizations against these um, three pillars of thriving cultures that I've mentioned. So fun, meaning, and belonging. We have specific behaviors associated with each of these pillars. Again, typically we will split, of course, um, and you can slice and dice the data any way you want. So on, based on departments um, or levels of hierarchy, other demographics as well. 
Um, and the third element that I think is really, really important is helping an organization to have an honest look at how they live their current corporate values or any mm. other elements of what we refer to as their culture playbook. So in our methodology, a culture playbook will typically have five elements. I'm not going to go into that, but basically that is the blueprint of your desired culture. That is what you put on a poster, right? But as we know, very often what you have on a poster versus what is actually happening in an, orga happening in an organization doesn't necessarily align. So, so I think it's important to take that snapshot and see, you know, what do we say we do or what do we say we value? And what do we really do? And look at these gaps and identify what are the areas that really need some work. So to do a really good culture diagnosis, I feel like we need all these three elements um, so that we know what's going on. And that gives us the data that we need to, you know, to identify what we call really a high leverage intervention. And a high leverage intervention is an intervention where you do something that requires relatively low effort um, with high impact. Mm. Because we, you know, we, we try to be as pragmatic as possible. We do know that people in the organizations we work with are incredibly busy. Culture is important for them, but at the same time, they have so much on their plate. Resources are scarce typically, and I'm talking about people as well and their time as well. And so we need to help um, these organizations to identify what they can do specifically that is going to have major positive impact on their culture and relatively fast. That's, that's usually the request. Like, how can we move the needle in the right direction relatively fast? And yeah. when you, you know, when, when you have some, some data that you can rely on, it's, it's so much easier to do it, honestly, because unfortunately we think that we know what our culture is. I mean, over and over and over again, every single time we run a culture diagnostic, um, some areas, yes. Um, companies do know the issues that they have and what's going on, but there are so many blind spots as well, especially senior leaders are so much more optimistic, I would say, when it comes to their culture, <laughs> like they think, oh yeah, you know, our culture is really quite good. But when you look yeah. at the, the point of view of the rest of the organization, they don't always agree. Okay. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I, I'm, I'm conscious of time, but I do want to just ask, like, could you give us an example of one of these, uh, of, uh, if that's okay, give us an example of an intervention that was a, a high impact kind of low effort and, and, and was able to really make a difference. Yeah. So just thinking of the, the, uh, literally the latest project that, that mm. we've worked on with a client. So we've identified, um, a suite of various, really, uh, issues and and um, challenges that they've had with their culture, but when we looked at the root cause of all of these issues, we basically landed on psychological safety and growth mindset. Like these were the two issues that stood in the way of all the other issues that they had, and so um, what what we decided to help them with was identify. Um, and a good approach to increase psychological safety first and then cultivate growth mindset. Mm. So starting with psychological safety, we looked at, um, leadership behaviors because clearly people who are in 
positions of formal power are the ones that typically take away from a sense of psychological safety. So we looked at that. We started with building awareness around what it is and how you build psychological safety in the first place, um, because it all starts with awareness. And it's incredible how little we know about what it is and mm. how it shows up. Um, and clearly it's not enough. So it's not enough to know what psychological safety is, but when we talk about it, and I love Tim Clark's approach with the four levels of psychological safety, people will really go like, oh my gosh, you know, I haven't even thought about it this way. Like, for example, you know, um, the first level, um, accepting people for their individuality and the sort of things that you need to do to really demonstrate that, that it's okay to be you, full mm. stop. Um, so, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of obviously, um, awareness building that you need to do. Um, you need to create a language and help the client also to create a language when people are doing things that, uh, go against this. So one of the things that I've learned and we're incorporating in our work right now from Kim Scott is, uh, for example, flagging issues. Like she literally will use a purple flag, uh, when, when they notice bias, <laughs> right? And someone in a meeting, mm. when someone says something stupid that basically goes against, uh, psychological safety, they will raise the flag. So we help our clients to create these rituals and the language and the common language where it's okay to talk about these things and it's okay to flag issues so that uh, with time that they can create a psychologically safe environment. And so that, you know, when you think about the potential impact of a psychologically safe environment on innovation, on learning, on growth, on um, results, it's huge. We haven't, in this specific organization, we haven't been able to measure it yet, but uh, we will. And so we'll see what, what the impact really is. But typically, um, it's, it's, uh, we identify KPIs, we identify the things that the organization wants to change. And then we try to correlate the interventions that, that we've been implementing with how the results are doing to see whether they have a positive impact. And there is an iterative process there, um, that I think people use, um, and teams use, especially product teams use a lot when they try to land on what's the right product. And we use a similar approach to iterate, to land on the right kind of initiative and the right kind of approach so that it produces the right results. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll toss it over to Spencer. I'm sure Spencer, you've got, probably got a question. Oh no, I was going to say, uh, we're going to introduce um, something we've not done before, which is a rapid fire inspired, of course, by you yep. as well. Um, <laughs> but, um, but before we do that, and I know we've got just under 10 minutes left. Um, do you, do you have anything else, Josh? Sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say we'll be I, transition at some point. Yeah. I just, ha I think I have, um, I'm interested in that last point actually, but I, I do have one, one more question. Um, but the, 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 I guess the, the methodology that you're using, let me just say from uh, an iterative, this is not the question, unfortunately, I'll get to it, but, um, the iterative methodology, are, are you referencing like agile or something like design thinking, um, where you're in introducing a, a part of, uh, an element of discovery and, and, and the various phases of what, what it might be to, to, um, you know, innovate design, things like that. But I'm interested yeah. in that. 
Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we use a hybrid and a mix of methodologies that basically enable us to um, pilot a, a, an initiative in a small group for a short period mm, of time okay. and see uh, whether it's having a desired impact. So we identify at the start what would be the indicators of this uh, being successful. And um, if we don't see desired impact, we go back, we typically work with a group of people that we call a culture squad mm. and a culture squad typically with the organizations we work with consists of these um, informal influencers that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And they are with us from the very beginning of the project. And they are the ones responsible for um, sort of um, coming up with solutions to, you know, if, if this approach hasn't really landed the way we wanted, what would be a different way? How could we, um, how could we iterate so that it has the desired impact? based on the feedback that they get from users. So I like, I really like, and I am fascinated uh, with uh, how teams designed products and I'm learning a lot from product design and trying to implement it as much as I can to how we design those people um, oriented interventions uh, or culture oriented um, uh, interventions, because at the end of the day, they need, they are supposed to serve the users, the final users. Mm -hmm. And so we create that feedback loop to see, is that having the desired impact? If not, why not? What might be standing in the way? And the going back to the drawing board, iterating, rolling it out again, really short um, loops, uh, really short periods of time. So not huge experiments. And then testing it again and again until we land on something that we feel like we can roll out in, in the large organization. Yeah, I love that. You're talking Very our language. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can only absolutely. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually one of our previous guests, uh, Nate Walkingshaw, um, is what was the uh, chief product officer at a company called Pluralsight. Had started many mm -hmm. companies as well before, and is now building a, um, a is currently in the process of building a company uh, called Taurus. But he he has a, a methodology called directed discovery. Uh, which is a very human-centric process, uh, and and a lot of like half discovery, half development. It's it's it's, it's very interesting. I'm mm -hmm. not going to do it justice talking about it, but I would definitely recommend checking it out. It's 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 a it's a oh, great well, um, methodology and process. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, I know we want to go to the rapid fire, but I, I would feel horrible if I didn't ask this question. So, understanding the moment that we're that we've gone through um, across the globe, um, thinking about some of the thing, some of these major external influences that are, are impacting company cultures. So of course, you know, COVID moving towards virtual environment, then companies not sure, well, do I go back to virtual or do I stay virtual, go back to work? Do I stay hybrid? And then in addition to that, we're seeing things like quiet quitting um, and then overemployment where employees are also working multiple jobs while mm -hmm. pretending to be just working one job. Mm -hmm. And I'm just interested in with the companies that you're currently working with, what are some of the things that, that they are doing? The successful ones are the ones that are cultivating, cultivating remarkable cultures. What are they doing uh, in response to some of these, some of these uh, major influences that I can imagine might do something to mm -hmm. a company culture? Yeah. 
So we work a lot with companies that are globally distributed. Um, I think it was natural evolution for them to move towards remote first environment or hybrid environment, but because they are globally distributed, so remote is always important for them. Um, has been important for them and now even more. And so what I see them do that the really great companies and the successful companies is to really rethink um, a few things. So like, how do we create meaningful connections in this environment? Um, what um, can we do to prevent um, overload and burnout? Because I think one of the, you know, one of the side effects of this whole situation has been that, that I mean, there's research that shows that um, meetings, for example, have increased by, I don't know, some crazy number. I don't remember. I think it was 300 percent or something like that. Mm. So basically people are now right. constantly in meetings and then after the day is over, they need to do their actual work. Yeah. So of course that leads to overload and burnout. So, so companies that um, are approaching it, I think really successfully, they are very, very intentional about figuring out what do we need to do uh, differently to still be able to maintain these meaningful connections without duplicating what they had been doing in the past and just adjusting it to the mm. virtual environment. I think that's incredibly important because, you know, I hear companies say, oh yeah, you know, we have our virtual parties or social events where people have drinks and happy hours or whatever, but we all know that it's not really great to be a part of these events and it doesn't <laughs> really create meaningful connections. And so you need to start thinking about these things differently. So a couple of examples, they'll, um, for example, um, say, okay, what are the facts? The facts are people still need in-person interactions, but now we don't work in the same office. So how can we create meaningful in-person interactions that will, um, help people build that social capital and social connections. And so they'll do, for example, what I love um, that some of um, the companies we work with do is they'll do co-working weeks where mm. they will go for a week um, in one location and five hours of the day are just working in the same space together. Um, but three hours of the day are really designed for people to meet others, people that maybe they haven't met before, um, team building, getting to know each other, just hanging out together and, you know, eating meals together and stuff like, uh, like that. I think it's very effective. I've seen it work really, really well. Um, it's, it's certainly, um, feasible because if you, um, don't need to maintain your offices, your large offices, you have the resources, you have the budget to do this from time to time. So, so I really like that being super intentional about designing these days. So it's almost like, you know, you design a conference and, and I see them approach this very, very intentionally, very professionally. Um, another thing that I've seen, um, that, that companies do really well when it comes to meaningful human connections is, um, facilitating those, um, almost chance, you know, interactions with colleagues that you wouldn't have normally met by, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Donut, or there are other apps that basically will pair people up for a virtual coffee. Um, mm. where the purpose is just to meet someone from a different department that you've never worked before. And that's the, the thing called bridging, because what we've seen during the pandemic is that teams that work together got even closer together. But there is now a really large distance between 
um, the parts of the organization that wouldn't typically work together. So that's, that's just one example of what I see organizations do really well. Another thing that I see organizations do, great organizations do really well is rethinking the way they manage performance and rethinking the way they um, manage rewards. Mm. I think particularly when it comes to rewards, you know, it's so important to think broader than we used to and making sure, first of all, that we reward people for the right things and also in a way that people will appreciate. So I love, for example, you know, what we see in our culture brand community, there's one company, I'm not sure if they would be comfortable with me sharing this, so I'll just skip the name, but they yeah. use blockchain technology and a token system to cultivate a development, a deliberately developmental culture where people basically are encouraged to identify a problem identify a solution to the problem, say that they want to lead that project. It's, it's, it has to be something that is going to push them out of their comfort zone, but it's also going to force them to collaborate with colleagues that they wouldn't collaborate normally, but it's on a real issue that the company is facing. And um, the senior leadership team then comes together and they discuss how much is it worth for us? Like if this team, you know, pulls it off, like what would be um, the value for us? And they um, they capture this value in the tokens. So they have these X mm. points. And so they say, yeah, this is worth 1,500 X points. And so when the team is done and if they're successful, but even if they're not successful, so people get rewarded for taking initiative and, and putting this team together, um, they will get these points, the X points, and then they can decide how they are going to uh, use them. So you can put them in your provident fund, your retirement plan. You can buy a ticket and go somewhere on a trip. You know, you can you can um, pick some other experiences that they have. So I really love this innovative approach to reward that is driving collaboration, that is driving meaningful relationships, that is driving the sense of deep fun where people have the autonomy to solve problems. And, you know, I have so many other examples. We're lucky, as I've mentioned, to run this community of cultural leaders from really incredible companies around the globe. And we hear so many great ideas about mm. how to approach um, this new world differently, because I think what worked in the past we all know is not going to work now. So it does require us to think out of the box. Yeah, that's amazing. I love all those examples, especially yeah. the last one. It resonates with some conversations that Spencer and I have even been having uh, recently. Uh, yeah. So Spencer, do you want to, do you want to. Yeah. Are we okay for time? Or do you, do we, are we okay for time? Yeah. Aga? Yes. Yes, let's go. Okay. For it. All right. That's great. Yeah. But I love that. I love your comments. We could probably have yeah. a podcast just about that. Tell mm -hmm. us 10 of your favorite, you know, um, rituals or, or, or examples from other companies and let, and kind of dive into each one of them and have a conversation about them. Let's do that sometime. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and I, 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 and I also believe that like the community that we have inside companies, we already, great things are already happening. Um, find them, identify them, 
invest in them, right? Do they have to recreate something? There's probably someone already doing some type of reward recognition program as an experiment somewhere in a silo, find it and then blow it up. And and I think that, um, you know, you've talked about experimentation, the importance of that. Okay. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, love bright spots, finding bright spots and learning from, from them. I love it. Yes, we're fully aligned here. Yeah, yeah. I just think there's often leaders fail because they don't, they think, oh, why, why are these people doing this thing in silo? Um, why don't they stay in their swim lane? But actually, mm-hmm. if, they're, if they're making an impact and they're being playful and they're being, you know, it, it, it's just working, then, mm-hmm. then blow it up. And when I say blow it up and invest in it, make it yeah. something massive in the company, give them the role <laughs> uh, to yeah. do that. But anyhow, um, so this rapid fire, I, it might, we might, I might fail on this rapid fire, but really short answers, you know, you know that. Let's yeah, start with a I really know. easy yeah. one. Um, You've, let's see, uh, based on what you've learned from your oh, like nearly 100 episodes, right? Which guest uh, had the greatest impact on your life or business? Seth Godin, hands down, Seth Godin. He's been such a great teacher to me. I mean, I've learned so much from him. I've participated in a number of his workshops. I uh, met two incredible women. I met a lot of people through Seth Godin, but two incredible women with whom we still meet um, every second Thursday now, but for the first few years, we were meeting every Thursday at the same time. One of them from Boston, the other one from uh, Australia, and just talking about our businesses and how we grow them. So there is so much that I, I am grateful for to Seth Godin. He's been an incredible mentor to me. And, and um, yeah, so definitely hands down, Seth Godin is the answer. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Do you know what? Originally, I put uh, other than Seth Godin because I knew you were going to say <laughs> Seth. Uh, but it's okay. It's okay. We'll yeah. move on. Um, so uh, let's see. Uh, most impactful book that you've read this year? Ooh, Idea Flow. So Idea Flow is a book written by two authors. I'm terrible with names, so we will put it in the show notes because um, I uh, my memory is terrible. Um, it's a book written by two people who are involved with d which is one of the uh, most famous um, um, schools and courses on design in Stanford. And um, basically they talk about how to create a strong innovation pipeline. And I'm reading it now actually and learning from it and implementing it as I go, literally, and I'm loving it. And I see the impact of it after reading the first three chapters, which is very rare. Like a lot of books are quite repetitive and the stuff that they share is nice to know and good to know, but, but, you know, you think what are the takeaways and what can I implement? And somehow you don't have a clear answer. That one. Amazing. Three chapters in, and I've already seen it, seen the impact. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Okay. Uh, here's a, here's a fun one. Have you done your Elliptic exercises today. What? <laughs> How do you know that? How do you know that I have the elliptical? Actually, it's, I wish I could turn the camera, but I can't. But it's actually right in front of me. No, I haven't yet, but I will do after this interview. 
Yeah, because I was going to say, why not? But yeah, okay. Well, uh, for those listeners, including me, who don't really understand fully about what those types of exes are, we're going to Google it afterwards. Okay, um, next one. Your This is a tricky one to do very quickly, but your biggest unanswered culture question that you have, like something you still are trying to figure out, the biggest thing, like what is it? You can pass, by the way. <laughs> yeah. My biggest unanswered culture question. Well, I would say it's kind of an ongoing question that maybe I figured some things out, but definitely there's so much more is how do you accelerate? How do you accelerate um, culture, cultivating culture in a scale up organization? A lot of companies that we support are very successful businesses that grow really, really fast. And so really one of the biggest challenges is how can we make sure that we embed our culture, the, the great stuff about us at scale really fast. And so there are some answers, but definitely not enough. I think that the world needs more answers to this question. All right. Nice can one. I, so can I ask yeah, one go real for quick? It. Yeah. yeah, if there was one, if there was one person you would want on your podcast that you haven't, <laughs> or, so you haven't already viewed, who would that be? Ooh, <laughs> only one, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I, th I think there's a hint there, isn't there? <laughs> I don't know. Is that? It might be a real. Oh, I thought it might have been a relation, but if because if you don't say that one, you might not get it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, it's, it's already, let me, let me, please give me a second. I, I want to have a think of yeah, on for it. Sure. Um, just one person and like, that would be guaranteed that they would really come onto the show. Um, I'll ask Spencer real quick while you're thinking about that. Spencer, if there was one person we could have on our podcast, uh, yeah, that we haven't had on thanks. yet, who would it be? Yeah, for sure. Oh gosh. No, you got me. Uh, I would say. How <laughs> to decide? Like, there's so many people. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Someone like Peter Drucker, or like some some real old, or Clayton Christensen, some someone that's, you know. Oh, so it's dead as well. Really not deep only thinker. alive. So we're even widening the pool now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, well, I was. I was going to say, Aga, uh, if you don't say, the, I, Josh, you're not going to want me to say this, but if you're not going to say my brother, you know, you might have missed yeah, yeah, the opportunity yeah. because he's like, yeah, he's number like, you know, 50, yeah, I'm yeah, like yeah. on them. Actually, <laughs> but seriously though, right? I would definitely love to have Greg on the show because his work is so incredibly relevant to what I believe is incredibly important, especially in scale-up cultures, which is essentialism. Like, you know, we see so many successful organizations try to do too much and fail because of that. It, it's it's hard, you know, and, and when the market is great and when they are successful, you suddenly see like 25 priorities and so people get overwhelmed and spread the thin. So yes, totally. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was a really great help. And I would definitely love to have Greg, Greg on the show. <laughs> you, you want to give him a message, a shout out? Yes. You want to yes, invite him you, right now, live? Yes. <laughs> Will you put a word in for me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I'll, I'll give it a go. 
Greg, I would really love to have you on my show, The Culture Lab. I think that you are the best person to speak to a lot of our listeners who struggle with um, struggle with identifying what they need to focus on to make their business successful. They spread themselves and their people too thin. And so we really want to pick your brain and talk about essentialism with you. And definitely it would be also pretty awesome to be able to speak about you in your book. Very good. Okay, last few. Um, most embarrassing situation or biggest fail you've had? It could be anything, nothing to do with culture, but like something, maybe work-related, I don't know. But anyway, yeah. you choose. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got, I've got a list. I've got, I've got some insights here as well, by the way. I could, I could you give do? you some suggestions. Yeah. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> You know, one thing it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's actually quite serious. And I think I want to share, I want to share this one because it sheds some light on something that is super important. I, I don't think that we spend enough time on this, at least not me. I've just realized. Yeah. So I was doing a keynote and a workshop for a client recently. And, um, it, it was, um, the keynote was about culture. The workshop was about reclaiming our creative genius. And we had an exercise where basically participants needed to stand up and form a circle at the back of the room. And because I wanted people to do this really fast. So I said, okay. And on the count of three, stand up and run to the back of the room and form a perfect circle. And then we will do the exercise. And I didn't think about it. And I didn't realize that we had one person who had mobility issues. And so they were not able to go there fast. And I, when I realized when it was already too late, because basically everyone was at the back of the room and this person was there unable to move to the back of the room, I was mortified. And, um, I realized, you know, and from now on the learning for me was you absolutely need to ask before other people with any special needs or any issues that we need to keep in mind when we design these things. And that made me think about how little I know about this issue and how we can really be inclusive in the workplace with um, everyone. And so I definitely want to bring this topic to my podcast as well. Like, you know, what, what do we need to do to be inclusive to people who have, um, limitations or issues that that some people don't and so and how can we be really mindful of that it was really mortifying for me and also heartbreaking mm. and i felt terrible so yeah that's an example of a really embarrassing situation not really funny but but truly I, mortifying I, if, if i can say one thing like i can i can i can i can empathize with that it's a really interesting i mean um just recently um a uh, colleague and I were facilitating a, uh, a design thinking session virtually. Mm -hmm. So this idea where you have a lot of, uh, of um, vulnerable collaboration in, you know, and, 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 and ha taking place on these virtual tools, like some people might use like a, basically a white, a digital whiteboarding tool. And um, what was interesting is we had a participant who doesn't use keyboard or mouse or has, or has difficulty using keyboard and mouse. Mm -hmm. And for virtual collaboration, all of the online tools basically yeah. require keyboard and mouse. And it required us like if, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting situation that that wasn't available with any of the online tools that we could find. There was not a single tool that would accommodate, let's say um, uh, a voice to text mm -hmm. uh, application in which they can also collaborate and, 
mm-hmm. and participate with their team uh, in, an, in an, an effective and engaging in an engaging way. So we had to really think about how to do that in a different in a different in a different yeah. method. But it's 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 such a difficult thing to put your mm-hmm. like to just take yourself out of your own shoes and and imagine those experiences of others and. And, 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 you know, kind of building in that time and space when you're thinking about those experiences and that, and, and those things that you'll be, you'll be creating is just who, who, who is beyond the idea of this mythical average person that's going to be yes. um, participating in this mm-hmm. experience. And, and I think that yeah. that's a really great thing to, to prompt yourself. And with. Josh, but you know, anybody, I, I really love the yeah. way you phrase it, actually. I think I'm going to use it in one of my questions now to my clients, like, you know, asking them exactly that, like who is not our mythical average person that we need to be thinking of when we design this for you. Um, mm. This is a really, really important question for some reason, you know, we haven't been asking it to, to our clients. Um, so yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we are, <clears throat> we are pretty much out of time and, and we, we couldn't get to the, uh, European patent office experience. Oh my gosh. What do <laughs> no, you know? No, no, um, <laughs> no, I, well, I was, you know, I was just reading <laughs> online, you know, all about, all about your, <laughs> no, um, or, or lessons from your dad. Like I would have loved to know. I, I hear that your dad is uh, pretty incredible at, coaching uh sports basketball and and uh yeah. football um but yeah we've run out of time so i think maybe we get, get an opportunity for you to share um you know wrap up um maybe any suggestions of who we should interview uh, that's a lesson from you uh, asking you who in your circle of influence and people you know who we should really talk to next but yeah mm-hmm. mention you know co- comment on any of those things in your wrap up Especially, how can people reach out and get involved with, uh, sure. you know, your company, Culture Brained, and how they can find you as well uh, or your podcast? Yeah, so I'm happy to send you recommendations um, of great guests for your show. So that's we we can do this offline, and I promise I'll do that. When it comes to where people can find us and find our community and Culture Brained, I think one of the best places to go to is to our website and my website, which is agabayer.com, which is spelled A-G-A-B-A-J-E-R.com. Our community Culture Brained can be found at culturebrained.com. And it's a community for people who look for new ways of cultivating thriving cultures and where they can find um incredible peers on the same journey and learn from each other. Um, and the culture lab podcast is available everywhere, wherever you listen to your podcast. I would love by the way, to do a culture swap. So I would definitely love to have you on the culture lab. So we need to arrange that. Yeah, that would be Sounds fantastic. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. We've gone over, Thank we appreciate all me. the work you're doing and, uh, it's just been really, really fun. 